0: Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, I'm speaking to brilliant Marxist intellectual John Bellamy Foster, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Oregon and editor of the Monthly Review. We talk about John's work developing Marx's theory of ecology and the relationship between man and nature, as well as the ongoing relevance of the theory of monopoly capital for explaining trends like the financialization of nature and the financial crisis of 2008. Thank you, as always, to all of our brilliant patrons. You are what make this show possible consider signing up at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. If you want to support the show in another way, please share this episode on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Now here is a quick word from our sponsor before we go into the full interview with John Bellamy Foster. The Left Book Club is a not for profit subscription book club it's an affordable way to get a carefully chosen list of inspiring books that explore radical alternatives to the current crises of capitalism. Every book is printed in a unique edition and you can choose between six or 12 books a year, plus author events and discounts from publishers including Pluto Press and Tribune magazine. I personally receive books from the Left Book Club and I find it a really great way to expand my reading beyond the kind of range of books I would ordinarily choose myself. And A World to Win listeners can get their first month subscription for free by going to leftbookclub.com slash member and using the code WINFREE. That's WINFREE, all in caps, at checkout. Hello, John Bellamy Foster. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you today?
1: I'm very good. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, we're very happy to have you. So, I mean, let's just get straight into it. I wanted to start by asking you about your work developing a kind of Marxist theory of ecology or developing Marx's own thinking on ecology, because your thinking kind of played a big role in the revival that we're seeing at the moment in Marxist ecology. There's been at this point, quite significant in terms of the, the thinking of the environmental movement. Can you explain what Marx meant by the idea that the relationship between man and nature was metabolic in structure, and your argument that Marx had this theory of a metabolic rift between man and nature?
1: Well, Marx was a materialist thinker, and uh, that went much deeper than than most people think when they Look at Marx's work, because we're inclined to think of him as a materialist thinker in terms of economics, in terms of social science. But actually, he came out of uh, the main scientific tradition in Europe, and uh, he wrote his his dissertation on the ancient Greek philosophy of nature, and he adhered. Uh, to the scientific conception of a materialist conception of nature. That is, um, nature had to be analyzed not in terms of religion or idealism or teleology, but it had to be understood primarily in in material physical terms and in terms of evolution in the broad sense, Uh, nature explained itself. And so he comes out of that background, and Marx's original contribution was to accompany or complement the materialist conception of nature, of natural science, with a materialist conception of history, which actually started in the German ideology. The, The first premise, as he called it, was that human beings were corporeal beings, that uh, they were characterized by corporeal organization. That is, human beings had to be understood in terms of their physical relation to their environment, their need to provide for their subsistence through the interaction with external nature. And uh, out of that arises the notion of the mode of production. And from that, Marx's Materialist conception of history, his historical materialism, his critique of political economy, and so on. But the the important thing to understand is that behind his materialist conception of history was always this materialist conception of nature. So materialism in that sense, uh, science is always um, present, say, in Marx's capital on practically every page, often in the footnotes. But uh, there's never any separation, gross separation between social science and natural science. And in developing this perspective, in his critique of political economy, Marx took on the concept of metabolism that had been introduced um, by cell physiologists in the early 19th century. And Marx was um, very... uh, Much influenced by a close friend of his, Roland Daniels, who was also a communist activist, but was a a physician and natural scientist. And Roland Daniels wrote a work called Microcosmos. And in his um, discussion of a microcosmos, uh, Daniels used the notion of metabolism to provide a sort of system ecology, the relation between organic and inorganic existence and between various forms of life, plant life, animal life. And this was in Daniels' work, Microcosmos. But but Marx was the only person to read that book because um, Daniels died early as a result of being in prison and the compromising of his health. And the book was never published until the 1980s. But Marx... um, took on the concept of metabolism, and he he also learned about this from from the work of justice von Liebig and others and Marx introduced the concept of social metabolism, and this was the notion that production human the human labor process and production was a social metabolism between human beings and nature, whereby human beings um, transform nature and their own relations to the natural world beyond human beings themselves. And so metabolism came to mean the mediation between human beings and the rest of nature. And this is fundamental to Marx's thought, but it also became the basis of all ecological theory and all ecological science. So the concept of metabolism, which Marx first introduced in the social context also became the framework for the development of ecosystem theory up to our present notion of the earth metabolism. So Marx was um, very directly ecological in his analysis, and he had three concepts really. One was the universal metabolism of nature, which he, he talked about. That meant all of nature of which human beings are a part, essentially the universe, the realm of natural law, social metabolism, which I've just talked about, the productive relation of human beings to nature, and the metabolic rift, the irreparable rift in the interdependent process of social metabolism uh, brought on by capitalist production, which he talked about in Capital. So the way this works is that the alienated social metabolism of capitalism, the alienated relation to nature embodied in capitalist production comes in conflict with the universal metabolism of nature, contradicting natural laws, the the very basis of human existence. And Marx expressed that contradiction between the social metabolism and uh, the universal metabolism of nature in terms of a concept of metabolic rift which referred to ecological contradictions he he first explained it in terms of the rift in the soil metabolism that was prominent ecological crisis in his day and uh, then he extended it into other areas and much of you know this analysis actually influenced later scientists and the development of of ecological theory. But it wasn't very well understood in Marxism for for a long time.
0: What does it mean to say that capital confronts nature as a free gift? And how was that perspective promoted by the Marxist contemporaries in political economy who he was critiquing?
1: Well, it's a complicated issue in, in the sense that there's nothing wrong with relating to nature as as a free gift in in a general sense. We freely appropriate uh, nature, and humanity has to do that in order to exist. And of course, we have in all forms of production throughout human history. So we freely appropriate uh, nature, and in that sense. Um, we can treat nature as a free gift to humanity. But there, is, there are basically rules in how we have to relate to nature. We have to relate to external nature, to the world around us, um, to the environment as, uh, in a sustainable way with some degree of reciprocity. So if we don't, um, we end up having an alienated relation to nature, and that's destructive. Now, the characteristic of capitalism is it treats, as Marx said, nature as a free gift to capital, which means that nature is treated as a means to capital accumulation almost exclusively, and therefore uh, we relate to nature in a very alienated, destructive way, and um, Capitalism expropriates in this sense, it expropriates that it robs the natural world in that it is not a relation of reciprocity. It isn't appropriation with reciprocity, but it's actually expropriation. We um, take from the uh, natural world and we don't replace. We, We treat it as though it's infinite and a basis for the infinite growth of capitalism and all of this is contradictory and destructive and, uh, and um, an alienated relation to nature, which really didn't exist to the extent that it does under capitalism. So the, the point is that tr- capital treats nature as a free gift within its um, commodity exchange uh, strategy, its accumulation strategy. And uh, nature is simply something to be robbed.
0: How does the divide between the use value of nature and the exchange value of nature, how is that driving, A, both the kind of current ecological crisis we're facing, but also the financialization of nature, which is something that you've written about extensively?
1: There's a notion of natural capital and um, the Earth's capital stock. And when capitalism came into being, particularly industrial capitalism in the 19th century, there were radical thinkers and socialists who saw that a society that was based simply on exchange value or the cash nexus or on money was in conflict with the um, the earth, with communal existence, with the commons etc., and that it was destructive towards nature. And uh, one perspective in this was the famous Lauderdale paradox introduced by the Earl of Lauderdale at the very beginning of the 19th century. And he explained that a system that's rooted in exchange value is rooted in scarcity, and uh, therefore it carries out accumulation partly by creating artificial scarcities, and he explained that um, private riches uh, were were um, were being promoted by the destruction of public wealth, and he included in public wealth all of the um wealth of nature, so that um as he explained water resources were being made artificially scarce to populations so that they could put a price on water and food was being made artificially scarce so they could put a price on, on food. And he explained that actually the destruction of nature and the destruction of public wealth helped, um, capitalism, although he didn't use that term. It wasn't in existence then it helped, um, it carry out its accumulation project, so that there has always been this recognition that the destruction of use values or natural material use values those things that really constitute wealth, is part and parcel of a system that sees wealth entirely in terms of exchange value in terms of money in terms of accumulation based on commodities and In the early nineteenth century, a number of thinkers like. Ebenezer Jones in in England and considered on in France and even Marx and Engels in their earliest work in the German ideology used the notion of natural capital or the Earth's capital stock and said that we have to protect that uh, against uh, exchange value. Marx later abandons the term of natural capital because he, he thought it tended to naturalize capitalism. But originally, the notion of natural capital was all about protecting the earth. Later on, that term, natural capital, gets redefined in exchange value terms and in capitalist terms itself, and becomes a concept that's used for the financialization and commodification of nature. So there's a great irony in this. As late as 1973, Uh, E.F. Schumacher was saying we have to defend the natural capital in his great um, ecological work, Small is Beautiful. But then that got turned around so that um, natural capital was no longer defined with use values, but it was defined in terms of exchange values. And then it just became a justification for the financialization of the earth. That is turning the earth the entire environment into money.
0: To what extent is this not confusion, but I suppose tension within this term natural capital driven by differences in understanding as to what the term capital itself actually means? Because the neoclassical economists and um, neoliberal policymakers who are promoting today this idea of natural capital broadly as an attempt to kind of commodify and marketize nature, see capital as basically like a thing that produces wealth and like a stock that you can count and measure and then exploit. Whereas to a Marxist, it's a social relationship. And interesting that Marx originally used that term natural capital himself as a way of saying that we should protect nature and protect that social relationship that human beings have with nature, and indeed that you know we are a part of broader nature. Um, so yeah, do you think that, that that tension results from the different ways in which the term is used, and there needs to be some kind of clarity as to what we actually mean when we talk about natural capital?
1: Well, I, I certainly think there, there needs to be clarity. Marx himself dropped the term by the time he wrote uh, The Poverty of of Philosophy. And he uh, adopted instead the distinction between what he called earth matter, which really was the way he had used natural capital originally, and earth capital. So earth matter referred to the material characteristics of, of nature and natural material use values. Earth capital referred to how that was being transformed into a form of capital that was being promoted on exchange value basis for the purpose of accumulation. So he drew the contradiction that way. I think it's very interesting that you you say that the problem in many ways has to do with our definition of capital, not just natural capital. And this is, um, this is a complicated issue, but as you say, um, the classical political economists, and particularly Marx, saw capital as a social relation, and capital was something that was generated through um, the um, production of value, uh, through the exploitation of labor, in Marx's analysis in modern neoclassical economics and contemporary neoclassical economics which is the dominant perspective on economics natural capital is really defined i mean capital is defined as uh, any in financial terms of any revenue stream that um any an- revenue stream that uh can be basically divided by the rate of interest and and multiplied by 100 capital is is simply reduced to um, the question of um, a um, continual revenue stream based on an underlying asset that is associated with a particular rate of interest and generates um, continual revenue. And this can be then valued, but it has nothing to do with necessarily with production with a value creation with social relations also in well neoclassical theory they've reduced what they the production function which is the basis of their analysis to just capital and labor it used to be capital land and labor mm. but they decided that labor can that land or natural resources can be completely substituted for so they excluded land or nature from the production function. So it's now just capital and labor. But the important thing is that in neoclassical economics and uh, in the way capitalism operates, the notion of capital has been financialized so uh, that it just means a revenue stream that um, can then be projected and divided by the rate of interest and multiplied by 100. And therefore you have a definition of assets into the future, but this leaves out the critical social and political economic aspects, and it's actually contradictory. The neoclassical economics doesn't actually have a definition of capital. Yeah. It's unable to define capital. This came out in the capital debates of a few decades ago. They don't have a consistent definition of capital, So, at the end of the capital debates, the leading economist, the leading neoclassical economist at the time, Paul Samuelson, said, Well, it's all based on a a fairy tale. But he was able to say that. He was able to say, Well, a neoclassical definition of capital is based on a fairy tale, it doesn't really have any basis but we're on top and you're not and so we we um we can talk about it any way we want uh, in terms of natural capital of course the what happened was that um it's related to a notion that was introduced uh, in the ecological debate and the notion of weak sustainability the concept of natural capital is as it's um, used in neoclassical economics today and in the dominant perspective, is based on a, a concept of weak sustainability primarily. It's assumed that all natural resources can be substituted by, you know, technology can be introduced to substitute for all natural resources. So as Robert Solo, the leading economic growth theorist in the neoclassical tradition said, since uh, natural resources can be substituted for, we can ignore them altogether. And that underlies the kind of reduction of natural capital to a pure exchange value concept, which is the opposite of what it meant in the beginning.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the, I guess, origins of your work in like the theory of monopoly capital developed by Barron and sweezy and the links between your work on ecology and that theory of monopoly capital and particularly the importance of this idea of over-accumulation and the economic surplus and how that relates today to the kind of commodification and financialization of nature
1: when i was um very young we i was involved uh in the anti-war movement uh, the, the anti-vietnam war movement and um, at the time braun and Sweezy's monopoly capital was the the leading political economic text that allowed us to understand not only how uh, economic crisis was re-emerging and and the contradictions of capitalism but also the role of militarism and imperialism and what was happening in the Vietnam War context. And um, I was active in the, the first uh, Earth Day and I was always, from very young, I was concerned about the environment, maybe as my, my primary concern. But um, at that time, the United States was dropping napalm on children and for me, that took priority, even over like rivers catching on fire. the fact that the war was was um primary, so i I didn't get directly involved in the environmental movement well, I was involved in the beginning, but i I basically focused on on the anti war movement and uh put the environmental issue aside uh largely at that time. And um, this um, went on with um, I basically got more and more involved in a Marxist view and um, Marx's own classical uh, work. And there was also the coup in Chile. And I decided, well, I'm going to devote my life to understanding imperialism and political economy and dealing with that. And uh, so I did. And I I. I basically went forward with some interruptions in uh, studying the implications of the monopoly capital theory, and I wrote my dissertation on the theory of monopoly capitalism. And I, I had, by that time, I was uh, close friends with Sweezy and working with uh, Monthly Review, and I, I continued with that for about a decade. But when it got to the late 1980s, I realized that um, we were facing global ecological crisis in a way that was different than before. There was climate change and there was the global extinction of species which really came to the fore at the same time and the destruction of the ozone layer that was occurring at that time. And I decided that the only way to understand this was in terms of capitalism. So I wrote my book, *The Vulnerable Planet*. But I was dissatisfied with that, even though it used um, green theory and Marxist theory, and did a—it was a short history of of um, of a capitalism and the environment. Um, a short—it was, I guess, a long history, but a short book, and uh, it tried to deal with the whole development. But there was uh, something missing. It was sort of an eclectic mixture of green theory and and Marxist theory. And I was involved at the same time. as was on the board of Capitalism, Nature, Socialism, that was started by Jim, James O'Connor. But the um, eco-socialism had emerged partly in the ni- in the 1980s. In the late 1980s, eco-socialism arose and was very critical of Marx. And Marxism, and basically said, well, Marxism was right on labor, but it was wrong on the environment. You know, Marx should have listened to Malthus, which was Ted Benton's argument at the time. And um, I was asked to um, deal with um, classical political economy and the problem of the soil by the historical critical Critical dictionary of Marxism being published in Germany. And I started a research. The not only classical political economic approach to the problems of, of, um, of the soil and agriculture, but also Marx's approach. And then it became clear to me that Marx's concept of metabolism and the metabolic rift was the deepest ecological critique that had ever been developed because it was equally social in its perspective and, and ecological and um, I analyzed that, but I couldn't understand where it came from in the sense that even Marx, who was a genius, couldn't uh, produce br- bricks without straw. So what? where did he get these conceptions? He didn't get it simply from Liebig. So I went back to his uh, doctoral dissertation in the very beginning and his his work on Epicurus. And the foundations of his materialism and worked forward and, and analyzed um, not only that but Marx's relation to Darwin. And out of this came this deeper ecological conception. At the same time, I was working with Paul Burkett, who wrote Marx and Nature, uh, it came out in 1999, and we were working together, but he was doing the value analysis explaining how Marx's ecological concepts were related to his value theory. Well, I focused more on, in my own book on the philosophy and science and history of this whole development, although I had a political economic background too. So this is how it, it all arose. Um, and what happened then is the generation of, of a, what we call a second stage of eco-socialism. That was rooted in the foundations of uh, classical historical materialism, and though no, was no longer simply eclectic, patching together Green theory and aspects of Marxism, but um, was more foundational and and ultimately more critical in its perspective.
0: I guess I I wanted to kind of continue to ask you and to press you on the links between your like early work and your later work, because this theory of monopoly capital, which as you said, was huge in the 60s and then kind of died away really reemerged in the wake of the financial crisis in no small part, thanks to your writing about this idea of um, monopoly finance capital and the ways in which the economic surplus generated under conditions of monopoly capital, you know, found its way into lots of other areas of, of the economy, whether that was into finance or, you know, the military and imperialism. And yeah, I'm just kind of wondering how or if there is a link between those problems of surplus accumulation and the commodification of nature that we are seeing today and also where else that economic surplus is finding itself. So, you know, obviously a lot of the military spending and conflict that We have at the moment can, in some sense, be traced back to those problems of surplus absorption in the original monopoly capital model. So, yeah, I guess I just wanted to kind of ask you a little bit more about the links between your earlier writing and work on monopoly capital and and those questions of financialization and these broader things for which you're most, I guess, most well known around ecology
1: there is a relation between that and the ecological perspective. The monopoly capital argument really centered around economic waste and not just economic waste, but um, ecological waste too. So part of the attraction, my attraction to it in, in the beginning was that it explained the growth of military spending as um well that that's a complicated issue in itself because it grows out of imperialism, but there was also an economic incentive for military spending in terms of the absorption of of the economic surplus. And this made waste productive in a sense for the economy. The same thing with the expansion of advertising, the entire sales effort and marketing. So very uh, enormous area of of um waste in any kind of rational macro economic social and and of course socialist sense um the sales effort is is um, a huge area of waste so i was very conscious of this when when i was studying monopoly capital in the beginning and these and the connection to the environmental issue when i um i was introduced to these ideas and in, in the 70s, I mean, and all the people around me, like, for example, Robert McChesney, we were uh, deeply into monopoly capital. I went to graduate school at York University in Toronto to work in political economy primarily. But although the Marxists there were adopting at that time, it was a, a fashionable back to Marx uh, approach of um, reinvigorating the falling rate of profit. And I remember I, I actually wrote a whole manuscript on proving the <laughs> attempting to justify and, and validate the falling rate of profit for a class. And I got to the last page and I decided, well, this is all wrong. So it doesn't work because the real problem is as Braun and Sweezy described it, is a problem of overaccumulation, uh surplus absorption, and so on. And I, I worked with the historian Gabriel Kolko. Who was uh, in, introduced me to data on capacity utilization, and to the work of uh, Joseph Steindl, who worked in the same tradition as Braun and Sweezy, and then Michael Koletsky. And so I I got much deeper into that kind of analysis, and my book, The Theory of Monopoly Capitalism, came out of that. And and what the argument was, you know, under a economy dominated by monopoly capital giant corporations who who controlled most industries price competition is effectively banned in the mature industries and so competition the whole structure of competition is changed and the effects of this and the banning of price competition the um, continual inflation of prices although monopoly capital tries to inflate prices slowly and uh, together with cutbacks in capacity utilization and output, which helps inflate the prices. The um, result was that the rate of exploitation, effective rate of exploitation goes up and monopoly capital ends up having this enormous surplus concentrated at the very top of the economy, which then can't find the investment outlets that it needs because I mean, this is a phenomenon of over-accumulation um, accumulation in the present is hindered by accumulation in the past. So you have all this productive capacity and you have productive capacity that's only being utilized at an, about 70% because there aren't the markets partly because of the huge inequality in society and um if an industry is facing 70% capacity utilization they're not going to invest in new new capital and um they're not going to invest in new productive capacity in in this situation the government the private sector doesn't work very well it becomes very reliant on on marketing in order to get consumption up To make that work, they have to introduce consumer debt on a large scale and inflate that. And it becomes very dependent on military spending. So there are all these forms of waste that enter in to um, promote the system. And the sales effort actually penetrates into production. So a lot of maybe of probably the majority in some sectors, something like 80% of the production costs are really associated with marketing and not with the actual production of the product. So we have all of these contradictions. Monopoly capitalism, since it doesn't, in, since investment stagnates, uh, there's a net, there's a stagnation of net investment or atrophy of net investment. It doesn't, the economy doesn't grow very fast, and it tends towards wage stagnation as well and um, a large reserve army of labor, much of which is disguised in various ways. So the economy stagnates. Military spending helped for a long time, but it doesn't really help unless it's constantly augmented. So what helped the system continue under these circumstances in in the 1980s, 90s, and into this century was the growth of the financial sector. And a financial explosion, where where the surplus ended up being put into the financial sector and and used for speculation, basically on financial assets and the buying and of um, companies buying their own stock in order to inflate assets and this whole realm of financialization and and speculation uh, developed. A Monthly Review, uh, coming out of the monopoly capital theory, and I played a role in this, was the leading s- uh, venue or source for analysis of this financialization process, beginning in particularly in the 1970s, but especially in the 1980s, with works like Stagnation and the Financial Explosion by Harry Magdoff and Paul Sweezy. And, Sweezy actually always wrote about the ecological aspects of overaccumulation accumulation and waste. And, uh, and in 1989, he wrote his great article, Capitalism and the Environment, that brought um, all of these issues together. And much of the uh, political economy of the environment that developed in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s in the United States most of it actually came out of the monopoly capital tradition.
0: Thank you. That was, yeah, a really interesting link between those two schools. Another thing that um, I wanted to ask you was, so in a lot of ways, and certainly if you look at levels of market concentration, the analysis found in monopoly capital seems very prescient. You know, there are lots of monopolies at the moment, particularly in the US, but the neoliberal school disputes this because they say actually, There is no evidence of raising prices, which up until recently, up until the kind of inflationary pressure of the last six months to a year, would have been a relatively convincing argument. And they point to particularly the role of big tech and the kind of platform economy as evidence that we aren't living under conditions of monopoly because we're not seeing price increases How do you think that Baran and Sweezy would have viewed the rise of big tech and surveillance capitalism? Do you think that it fits within the framework?
1: Well, yes, of course. The argument in the monopoly capital tradition has always been that uh, giant capital, giant corporations controlled most industries. And then there's increasing aggregate concentration in industry as a whole. But that was denied throughout neoclassical economics. They kept on talking about competition, free competition, and arguing that monopoly power didn't exist. Even uh, some uh, thinkers in the Marxist tradition, more on the fundamentalist falling rate of profit tradition, argued that there, there was no effective um, monopoly in the U.S. economy. So in, in 2011, I did a empirical study with um, R. Jamil Jonah and uh, Robert McChesney, which we published as, um, I think it was Monopoly and Competition in 21st Century Capitalism. And um, we provided the empirical data showing, using new databases, showing that concentration had increased in every Industry in every major industry in the United States. We also demonstrated that aggregate concentration was going up. We showed that that 35% of of all gross profits went to the top 200 corporations in the in the United States. Out of 4 million firms, 200 were getting 35 to 40% of all gross profits in this was increasing and um our empirical analysis was um was so effective it's it really surprised me that suddenly paul krugman was referring to it In i mean this is month review and it's a socialist magazine so you wouldn't expect the analysis to to be recognized but our empirical analysis was so strong that you have paul krugman referring to it in the new york times and uh other columnists in the New York Times referring to it, and then Industry Week had a whole issue, special issue, based on our analysis, and then the Economist magazine took it up. And suddenly, at least in the uh, liberal traditions in economics, the, the um, it suddenly became recognized that um, concentration and centralization, as Marx talked about it had occurred and was still occurring and had monopoly was a major problem in the United States. So this is a big shift. But um, in the antitrust literature, and some of this also crosses over into um, parts of the left, because the left is often divided on these things. But the in the antitrust literature, we had the growth of of, um, of the Internet monopolies. In the late 1990s. I had written a piece saying that that, we, that the whole internet was going to rapidly be under the control of a handful of monopolies, and it was, and we're arguing against uh, Bill Gates's position at the time, and and uh, nobody seemed to believe it, but it happened uh, with lightning speed, and uh, but we're seeing like in the case of Amazon. Amazon is obviously a case of monopoly capital. Monopoly capital, it's not just a question of controlling individual industries, it's it's also a question of not just horizontal integration across your own industry, but vertical integration, controlling the processes that lead up to your industry and conglomeration that is controlling other and all sorts of industries these uh, giant corporations actually operate in many industries not just one and then they're multinational capital that is their global corporations and uh, amazon of course not only fits that but is almost unique it's um it uh hasn't been all that profitable outside of the military sphere but it's um gained constantly from the growth in assets because investors Invest in it on the basis that it is going to be the market, the one market. Now, in the antitrust literature, in the neoliberal tradition, they've come up with this argument. Yes, these now are these are concentrated industries. They're controlling everything, but it's not really monopoly unless it increases prices. And they say, well, they're not really increasing prices. But that's um, that's a fallacy in. As monopolization occurs, uh, as um, corporations take over new spheres, they don't uh, inflate prices immediately. They simply drive other firms out of business. It's when they have reached a mature state where they control what they can control that they start inflating the prices um, more and uh, you get that direct monopoly effect. But to um just let Amazon or we could come up with any number of examples, Walmart and so on take over all of um business is um is asking for it um and I think the the working class um is aware of that now, but in terms of inflation, we have to remember we have nine percent inflation now, and it's you have extraordinary profits emerging. And uh, the price inflation is being driven by industry rather than by wages. And there have been mm. studies, study after study of this. But if you look back to the 19th century and you look at the US price levels in the 19th century, in the 19th century, when you really did have competition and not monopoly capital or monopoly finance capital, but real competition the price level the general price level in the u s economy fell in almost every year uh, i think every year in throughout the nineteenth century, except during the the u uh, s civil war and um, in the twentieth century and and so far in the twenty first century the general price level has risen in every year except for the Great Depression. So monopoly capitalism operates differently. There's always price Mm -hmm. inflation under monopoly capitalism. It's just a question of degree.
0: There's a big question hanging over all this about what the state can do, about monopoly, about climate breakdown, all of this sort of stuff. And Baran and Sweezy were accused of holding a kind of instrumentalist view of the state, where it just does what capital needs it to do. What's your view on this? Do you think that there is a solution to climate breakdown that can come from the capitalist state, or is it too beholden to the interests of fossil capital and militarism?
1: Well, in terms of the instrumentalist debates on the state, um, it goes back to uh, controversy in Marxist theory in the 1970s, mainly between Nicos Poulantzas who had a more structuralist model of the state and Ralph Miliband's um view in, in England which was seen as more instrumentalist he never used the term instrumentalist for his own view but if you look at this in historical terms the um analysis that Poulantzas was putting forward was in the period of Eurocommunism and strong social democratic movements in Europe and that the structuralist theory of the state that Palancis was offering was just about, was mainly about how the socialist movements could enter into the state, a kind of strategy for entering in and uh, reshaping the capitalist state, which was seen as relatively autonomous from the economy but very relatively autonomous, let's say. In England, Miliband saw the state as relatively autonomous, but um, not so much as as Palance's. And um, Miliband was coming out of a situation in in England in the early 1960s. Uh, he wrote his, his Parliamentary Socialism, which was really about the defeat of the failure of the Labour Party to go in a genuinely socialist direction. And so all of his works on the state were really about the defeat of the left in the United Kingdom and why capitalism had maintained so much power over the state despite the development of Labour Party. So he was looking at things from a very different perspective than on the continent. But... Um, I think that the Miliband's perspective is is actually more useful, more related to the reality that we have under neoliberalism. You know, the concept of neoliberalism was introduced in in the early 1920s. The term came from socialists, um Austrian socialists who were attacking the views of of um von Mises and um and Hayek, um, who came along later in Austria, and they were promoting a very extreme version of liberalism because liberalism was in trouble at the time. That is, von Mises was that um, basically wanted to subsume the state within the laws of the market. And that was recognized by socialists at the time, and they they called it neoliberalism and criticized it. But along came the the Second World War and so on. Those debates disappeared for a while and then reemerged after the Second World War. And for a while, the the neoliberals who began to reorganize were ignored. Um, It was the Keynesian era, the era of of state regulation. But um, with the crisis of capitalism in the mid-1970s, the beginning of economic stagnation, neoliberalism was sought out by the, the um, capitalist interest because it basically blamed everything on wages and um, workers and had a, a strategy for a resurgent capital control. And um, they developed a, the, um, an approach that would subsume the state uh, within the in the market in the sense that the state now was no longer relatively autonomous in the way that it had been before, but it had to conform in its own actions, in its own structure, in its own processes to uh, market principles. And this became a, a huge wedge against using the state for social purposes, the theorist who who explained this best, I think, was Foucault. So um, I would say, well, Baron and Sweezy said that the the United States was nominally a um, a democracy and and uh, in reality a plutocracy. I think that this is really essential. Will Rogers, the 1930s comedian said that um, the United States had the best Congress that money could buy. And uh, I think this is very close to the situation we're in. The um, capital does control the state, but the state is also no longer controlled by industrial capital, but um, it's controlled mainly by financial capital, by the financial sector or by monopoly finance. Uh, So it's even more difficult to use the state for social purposes, this is another part of the problem that we face today.
0: And that is all we have time for. And I think that was very fitting to end on that brilliant exposition of the debates on the state uh, that took place in the 1970s, a very interesting detour there, which I think speaks very closely to many of the challenges that the left faces today, um, and especially the parliamentary left. I mean, we could talk so much more about all of these questions, but we unfortunately have to end it there. So thank you so much, John Bellamy Foster, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.